gospel, the whole gospel. The title of this message this morning is God the Creator. And I invite you to turn with me in probably the first page of your Bible is Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And follow along with me as I read um, into this chapter in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said that there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said that the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the light, and let them be for the signs and for the seasons and for the days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said that the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and that birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them. Saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. And let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said that the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, 
and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. May God add the reading of his word, the blessings to his people. Let's pray together. Father, it is good to look upon you this morning. Had we not looked upon you, our hearts would be faint today but we dare to look upon you by faith to behold your goodness and your greatness through the good news that has been delivered to us by the means of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has become for us the righteous substitute to satisfy all that we had failed to do and be. For we are not good. We are sinful. But now, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you have restored us and redeemed us unto that good and perfect state. Father, thank you for giving us a justified and right standing before you by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as every preacher that you have ever empowered to preach the gospel, I pray for the same blessing and power and urgency of the Spirit of God to preach the gospel to your people and to the people who are lost. And we pray that this gospel will be of of all of its power as it enters into our ears and then eventually into our hearts, and that we will believe afresh upon this good news that has been delivered to us by the first chapter of the Word of God. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this new sermon series, I want to ask you a question. If someone were to ask of you, what are the essential truths of the gospel? How would you respond? If someone were to ask you, what are the foundational truths? What does the gospel boil down to? How would you respond? What truths should be irreplaceable and repeatable? And what truths may not enter into that conversation but that are legitimate, at least to the Christian faith. If someone were to ask you today how they might know how to have peace with God and experience forgiveness of sin and newness of heart, 
where would you begin? Now, there are many ways to begin a conversation such as that. And this morning, I dare to say that there are those many ways. This sermon series will present to you at least one way. And one way that you can look upon the Word of God and share the gospel. I don't intend to merely present the gospel to us as a church as a propositional truth, even though, granted, it is the greatest propositional truth that's ever been published throughout all of time. And, by the way, the gospel isn't just propositional truth, it's an invitation. And it is the greatest invitation that has ever been shared. And by the end of this sermon series, I hope to engrave upon our hearts, and I hope that the Spirit will really engrave upon our hearts, that the gospel isn't just hope for a new life in Christ. It is the watershed. It is the fountain of new life for every believer in every day that he lives. As a means of reference and content, I'll be using the outline for our sermon series from a book called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. This book will greatly influence our sermon series together, and by no means will I seek to take credit away from the author um, for his simple and straightforward explanation of the gospel. But what I intend to do is take the outline of how he shares what is the gospel and bring it to us through this sermon series. The Christian is saved by the gospel, and the Christian lives by the gospel. We are saved by the gospel, and we continue to live by the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. The Christian never gets away from the truths of the gospel. And those truths not only have a demand on the believer's life, but those truths are the very essence of the Christian's life itself. As we begin this series, I'd like for us to consider at least one view of how the gospel is presented to us in the scriptures. If we were to take a view that the Bible is set up as a pattern of teaching and purposeful and a planned presentation of the gospel, what might it look like if we were to take the Bible and let the Bible present the gospel to us, rather than take maybe some pattern that we've come up with and that good teaching and certainly systematic and biblical theology has presented to us? What if we took the Bible and allowed the Bible to present to us a pattern for our means of not only sharing the faith of Jesus Christ, but also living the faith out in our lives? Well, when we take that point of view, then we must begin with the first page of the Bible. And the first page of the Bible is the gospel of Genesis. If we were to preach a gospel series, normally you might think we might start like in the gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and present maybe Jesus speaking to the woman at the well or the rich young ruler or, or something like that and present the gospel and those. And none, all of those are, are relevant and actually, you know, biblically and scripturally uh, good patterns to follow. But, but if we were to let the Bible, at least its organization and its thought, show us the pattern of, of what would the gospel be, then, then surely we must understand that that would actually begin on the first page of the Bible. So the first page of the Bible informs our gospel. And so the gospel begins in Genesis. The gospel, the truth of the gospel, the truth of good news begins on the very first page and in the very first words of the Bible, in the very first verse. In the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. So first of all, from this, we learn as we were reading through, and I was careful to emphasize this, that that God spoke the world into existence. He spoke all of creation into existence. I want you to hear how the author of Genesis is repetitive about this point. Look back into your Bibles and and follow along with me, and I'm just going to highlight a few, but as you continue on through this chapter, you'll hear all the time when all of a sudden I draw it to your attention. But notice in verse number three, God begins to speak things in his creative craftsmanship. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. And God, verse five, called the light day and he called the darkness night. Verse six, he said, let there be an expanse. And he made the expanse. And verse number eight, he called the expanse heaven. So we have this communicating God, and everything that he's communicating is happening. Everything that he is saying has power. Everything that he is saying is, is not put, there's no pushback. The darkness doesn't push back against the light. The light doesn't push back against the called out darkness. All of these things are within the omnipotent power of God and everything that he merely says is made and there's no resistance. Everything is wonderfully communicated. It is commanded into being from nothing. Everything is commanded into being from nothing and nothing disobeys the command. So we learn that God spoke it, so he communicated and he commanded it to be created. He created these things. And in the means of making these things, notice like, for for example, in uh, verse number four, he saw that the light was good and he separated, he separated the light from the darkness Okay, and then in verse number six, you see he separated the waters from the waters. And then in verse number seven, he made the expanse and he separated the waters. And uh, verse number nine, he, he says, let the heavens be gathered together. And it was so, and, and he gathers all these things together. So he is actively involved in creating these things, speaking them to, into existence He's creating, and he's the most masterful creator the universe has. But there's a third thing that happens then that is packaged into each one of the the telling of God's creative acts. He commands, and he communicates, and he creates. But that isn't the end of it. The end of God's creative acts in the first week of this world is that he blesses what he has created. He blesses it. He calls it good. For example, the very first thing he makes is light. And verse number four, he saw that the light was good. And he continues on throughout all of this, saying that there is a good thing being done. And verse number 10, it was good. And he moves on and he keeps saying that these things are good. He's very satisfied. Uh, Verse number 12, at the end, it was good. And continuing on 
down towards verse number 18, he saw that these things were good, okay? And he says in verse number 21, at the end of verse 21, it was good. But notice it culminates as he's satisfied with his, his works, which, by the way, God is only ever satisfied with his works. And he is, verse 22, found blessing them. So God has communicated, he has commanded, and he has created, and then he has blessed. He has blessed these things. Seven times God speaks and things are created. From light to fish and fowl, seven times God speaks and things are created. Then as we move into um, verse 26, we find that he makes man, and verse number, in chapter 2, it slows down and talks how he made mankind, both man and woman. But the crowning moment of all of the things that God had made that were good, the crowning moment, the pinnacle, the apex of God's created acts is making something that reflects himself. Intimately, inherently reflects likeness unto himself. The crowning moment happens in the eighth movement of God's creative acts in making man. And God, God speaks about his intention to make man. Notice in verse number 26, God said in the council of the Trinity, as he considered the great work that he was about ready to enter into doing, he says, of all the things of creation, that this will be a very significant and set-apart moment of his creative glories. Let us make man after our own image. This will be the crowning moment of God's creation. He has an intentionality about making everything up to this point. But this intentionality certainly seems to intensify, especially as it relates to a self-reflection, even if you would say a self-glorification. The purpose and intention here is significant and seems to overrule all of the intention and purposes that has been made up to this point. And notice then that while he speaks within his counsel of himself, God does not speak to make mankind. He has spoken light, and light was made. He has spoken fish, and fish were made. But he does not speak when it comes to making his, the pinnacle of creation. He does not speak to make man. But he gets even more involved in man's making. He is intimately involved in the making of men. He is personally, and by personally, we even mean by personality, in all of his attributes of relatableness, is moving towards not an inanimate object, a soulless object, but he's moving towards a soul, a living being with self-consciousness and eternality about it. And he's involving himself with his very personhood in the creating of mankind. 
In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul and really the, the writings, especially in the New Testament, remind us of the fortitude, the robustness of the teachings of the Old Testament of the expansiveness of God's creative acts. In Colossians 1.16, the Apostle Paul says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and then there's a purpose for them. They were created through him, and all things were created for him. And this really centers our, our understanding. It really clarifies our understanding of God's creative acts. That God wasn't merely a bored being, a flippant being, um, or an exper- experimental being. He was a God of great intentionality and of pure intentions and moved towards nothingness with the purpose, ultimately, in his creative acts of creating man, of creating mankind. In John 1, John picks up on this, and he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. As the Bible even closes in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So why was everything created? Well, as the times are wrapped up in the book of Revelation, we learn that everything, we we are reminded that everything was created for the purpose to bring glory and honor and power, to ascribe glory and honor and power to God. In Romans 1.20, the Apostle Paul says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, and ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God has revealed himself in this world. Jeremiah exclaims, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. You know, if you were to put together a a puzzle about the gospel, all four corner pieces would be Genesis 1. We have this puzzle in our home right now. It is the eternal puzzle. I was assured two weeks ago it was half done. It still looks the same. It's a puzzle of elf. Not Elf on the Shelf. It is as inane as the Elf on the Shelf. It is Elf, the movie, with his face all over the puzzle. If we're to form the corners of a puzzle that really will come together, if we're to understand what it is to frame the whole gospel, the best place to start, the critical place to start, is by understanding that as a human race, there is a divine creator. There is a divine creator. And then that means, then secondly, then since he's the creator, then we are created. We are created. The central truth is that all of this came from God's mind. 
This, by the way, moves us. Like, for example, in Psalm 8 that we read this morning, O Lord, our, our Lord, how majestic is the name in all the earth. And when I look at everything that is around me, I am drawn to worship you because I see this. This was your imagination. This was your creative abilities. All of this came from God's mind. But let's make this personal. You came from God's mind. In Psalm 138, the psalmist says, How can I even assess all the thoughts that you have for me? For you even know the number of hairs on my head. You know my sitting down, and you know my rising up. You know my thoughts from afar. You know me because you have made me with wonderful craftsmanship, and it's the word fearfully and wonderfully made. And your thoughts towards me are better than I could ever imagine. The central truth is that not only did all of this universe come from the mind of this amazing being, God. It came not only from his mind and his creative acts and skill, but it came from his passion. It came from his passion. It came from his desire. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an, an acting out of, of just of boredom. It wasn't out of chance. It was a direct act of his passion. And so believer and uh, and human sitting here before me this morning and hearing this message, you were an intentional act of God's creation, knowing exactly what he was doing when you were conceived in the womb of your mother. He is the God who created you. And the good news begins with the fact that God is a creator who created you. And the creation of the world was a determinative act by a, not just a God, but a God that we read about many times in this first chapter, a God who is described as good. A good God. A good he made all things good. And by the means and by the testimony of them being good, they were good for his purposes. And so God didn't speak man into existence. He shaped man out of his good will, out of his good acts. And he crowned man as the, crea as the crown of all of his creation. As we had read in Psalm 8 this morning, Psalm 8, 4 through 8, the psalmist reflects on this creative act of God. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. The psalmist reflects, how are we worthy? How are we worthy 
to be delegated to, the stewardship, the enjoyment, the interaction with, the human experience with these magnificent creatures in this magnificent landscape, both horizontally and vertically in all the universe. Who are we that you would set your mind on us? The good news is that the psalmist is saying, yeah, you have set your mind on us. We are on your mind. You are on the mind of God. And returning to Psalm 139, the psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. You knitted me. You were personally involved in making me. In my mother's womb, I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Gilbert says in his book, he says, the implications that God created the world and especially created you are enormous. And let me say, and to further that out, the implications that God created the world and that God created you are unmistakably relevant to every part of your being, of your life, of your calling, of your ambitions, of the roles you play, of who you are, even the very core of your identity is all related to the implications that God created the world and he directly created you. And even though here in America, especially in our Western thinking, we will advocate for freedom and liberty where individuality is king. And we all express this. We have no idea, by the way, as Americans, how well we express our passion for individuality in our, the democracy and the Western philosophy that we live in. All of us, even as saintly as we may be, still love this individuality. And really, as a world, individuality is king. All of creation and all of mankind must come back to the basic Bible truth that if we are created, we are made, and therefore we are owned. All of this comes to this point of the spear. If we are created, we are owned. And since we are owned, God has the right to tell us what to do. Since we are owned, God has the right to tell us what our purpose is. And so our third point in Genesis 1 that we learn is that not only did God speak, he communicated and commanded and created and blessed. And not only were we created, not by spoken word, but by the personal involvement of God and his hands shaping man to be the, the pinnacle of all of his creation. But thirdly, we are owned. We are owned. As we move into this, there is a very significant truth that we need to understand that I'd like to illustrate if I can beg for some of your patience and humor on this. In the epic movie uh, called Toy Story, 
there's two figures, especially in the first movie. One is called Woody. And how many of you remember Woody? And the other one is, um, and the owner of Woody, his name is what? Andy. And how do you know? It's on his shoe. It's on his shoe. But there is a next door neighbor to Andy. And his name is what? Sid. Now, Sid is a creator, isn't he? Sid has taken Barbie dolls and army men and remote control cars and all sorts of action figures and heroes, and he's combined them to make some sort of creature. And the terrifying part of the story is when Buzz and Andy get involved in the backyard and there becomes a rescue operation enhanced by the supreme skills of the little green army men who sacrificially give of themselves to rescue Andy and Buzz. And in this bedroom of Sid, as the light pulls up, the figures of these terrifying creatures that Sid has made, we realize something not about the creatures, but we realize something about their creator, Sid. Sid is a twisted, sick boy who's a lot like every boy that's ever lived. <laughs> not like Andy. And we realize something, that there can be a bad creator. So there rests in Genesis 1 the central truth that guides this and fills up the beginning of our understanding of the gospel from the Bible, and that is that God isn't just a creator because there can be all sorts of creators, can't there? There can be Sid-like creators. But God is demonstrated in Genesis 1 as being the best creator you could ever imagine. Beyond the description of the inspired words of God, God is a holy and righteous and good creator and has blessed all of creation because of the goodness of his nature. So then it will matter if he's good what he owns, won't it? And, and this is sometimes in unbelieving and in our unbelieving world that the terrifying thought of them is, is if I admit that God is my creator, then I, I don't know, is he like Sid? Because I don't know that I want to be owned by Sid. I don't want to make that, that proposal. I don't want to acquiesce to that truth. It is ours to get hold of this truth of the gospel that God isn't just a creator, but the full truth is that God is a righteous creator. And that makes all the difference then in the creation purposes, doesn't it? And in the ownership. Because who wants to be owned by Sid? And so we are owned. And this is an inclusive truth. If I can say this in the most righteously woke truth, God is the most inclusive being in all the universe. He invented inclusivity. 
and you and I are proof of that. By God's grace, he has, he has invited, and not merely invited, but compelled people who marred his image, who broke his law, and who are detestable to his holy nature. And he has said, I will restore you back to good. It is an inclusive truth that we are owned. That is, there is not a single being, a single part of the universe that is not owned by God, whether believer, unbeliever, Christian, non-Christian. It is an inclusive truth, and it is a repeated truth. So moving on from the scriptures here in the first page of the Bible, for example, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, God declares through Moses, all the earth is mine. In Deuteronomy 10, 14, God through Moses tells the people of Israel, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens and the earth and all that is in it. You see, throughout scripture, there's just this repetition You are owned. Everything is owned by God. But notice it's always tied to his goodness and his righteousness. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In Job 41, as Job's book closes, God tells Job in the last four chapters of Job, God declares his greatness and his goodness in this majestic sermon. In Job 41, 11, God tells Job, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 50, the psalmist exclaims, Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on the thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. How do you like that for anthropomorphism? If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I would just help myself. I'm not hungry, of course. It's all mine. I don't have to ask your permission. It's mine. And the purpose is for me. We are owned. Not only is it an inclusive truth and a repeated truth, but it's an instructive truth. The Apostle Paul takes this truth and he brings it with urgency into the heart of every believer. In 1 Corinthians 6 19, he instructs the believer now you are not merely on the first level created by God, but you have been redeemed, bought back from fallen state by God. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? He further reinforces this in his continuing argument later in chapter 7, verse 13, and he says, you are bought with a price. And later he instructs the young pastor Timothy in Ephesus, we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. It was all here before you, and it's going to be here after you. It's just not yours. So a helpful way, in the means of our illustration, is to think of Genesis 1 as looking at the bottom of your boot. Your own. 
by the creative and determinative act of God, who is not only a creator, but a righteous creator, who has created all things good and has blessed all things. And so the good news begins with the whole truth about God and man. And that truth is that we were created by God and that he is good. God is righteous, and he knew what principles, he knew what laws, he knew what boundaries to place in the life of mankind so that man would have pleasure and delight and satisfaction and contentment in this world always. God knew what it was to design man to have pleasure and to have enjoyment and to have contentment. And God created you and I with that desire, with that passion, with that pursuit. God knew how to help man preserve his goodness and how to help man to live out his purpose for which he was created. But the fact is that the good news of the gospel is grounded in God, the creator's goodness. When man sinned, because God is good, because God is righteous, And because God is the ultimate creator, he responded to the bad news of sin with the good news of salvation. Because God is good, he responded to man's sin, the bad news. Because God is good, he responded to the bad news with good news. Let's pray.